As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. When I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Hello and welcome to Killer Queens, a true crime podcast. I'm your host, Torella. And I'm your better, prettier, younger host, Tori. We're sisters who are obsessed with true crime and love gal palin with you about cases. You can expect the occasional curse word, lots of friends quotes, and all the 90s nostalgia. To get in on the conversation, check us out at KillerQueensPodcast.com. You can also find us on Instagram and Facebook at Killer Queens Podcast, And we're on YouTube at Killer Queens, a true crime podcast. Okay, y'all, grab your Capri Suns or your Surge and let's talk about some true crime. All right, welcome back to Killer Queens. We are in the middle of a two-parter. So, I mean, I think there's nothing else to do except just to launch right into it. Well, sure, except. Oh. Yeah. If you haven't listened to part one, this probably won't make a whole hell of a lot of sense. So go back. Unless you enjoy being confused. Yes, we're not here to tell you what to do, how to live your life, whatever you're into, man. And in case you feel that you would like to get some extra episodes, check out our Patreon. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. And when you're done at Patreon, going over to Oh Snapped. That's right. And get more episodes. Those are one a week. Yeah. Snapped recaps all day long. Well, once a day, weekly. So, you know, there is a frequency to it. Sure, yeah. You Any- could potentially put it on repeat and make it all day long. I don't know. I don't know what you want to do. But yeah. there's extra episodes uh, on the Patreon. You can check out Oh Snapped. And also follow us on Instagram because we're doing some fun some fun stuff over there. We're getting more into lives and we're figuring stuff out. We're going to try our hand at Reels. I've been working on that. Haven't successfully done it yet. But, you know, I hope to one day make a Reel. Well, and I think kids these days are into it, so we're going to try. Yeah. Yeah, I worked on one forever, and I couldn't get it to work, and my husband was like, yeah, and a 10-year-old could do that in four seconds. We need to befriend a 19-year-old. Yeah, exactly. Figure this out. Yeah, for sure. So anyway, you know, just make sure that we, or we just want to make sure that you knew about those things before we got started. And when we left off last time... The police had arrested Andre Chikatilo for theft charges from his previous employer. So he ended up getting sentenced to one year in prison, but he was released after just serving three months. So at this point, he's free again. We now know, and the police don't know yet, that he's got that weird blood type where his blood doesn't show up correctly. 
But if they'd tested his saliva, semen, anything else, they would have known that he actually does match some of the victims. Yeah, some of these cases. So right now they think that he doesn't. Being released from jail did not mean that Andre had changed his ways, of course. He just decided he was going to pick up where he left off. Yeah, he's like, minor snafu. Mm -hmm. Everything's fine. We'll just sail without it. Yeah, kind of a staycation from sadistic murders. And now we're back. I've relaxed. I've energized, rejuvenated. Now let's get back to it. Never better. Never better. In December, after he was released, he found employment at a locomotive factory where he was once again free to travel for business and find new victims. Like, what are the odds that he gets all these jobs where he travels all the time? Yeah, he's like Sir Topham Hat, just <laughs> going to and fro. Wow. Well, pulled out a Thomas there. Talk about locomotives. Oh, locomotives. <laughs> I don't think Sir Topham Pat does do anything with locomotives, if I'm being honest. The modem on a locomotive, what, that's what I was doing there. That's what we in the biz call it, locomotives. Oh, we're talking about his Wi-Fi now. Okay, <laughs> got it. I was in confused. the early 80s. Exactly. Yes. 1985 brought in some changes to the way this unknown serial killer was being hunted by the police. The director of Moscow's Department of Violent Crime, a.k.a. the Killer Department, took over the case and reorganized the investigation. It was now decided that the officers would be sent out in teams to cover the major train stations. One team to Shakti, one to Rostov, and one to Novoshoktinsk. Uniformed officers would patrol these stations and stop anyone they found suspicious. On top of that, undercover officers were sent to the smaller stations to observe and report. On August 1st, Chikatilo went on a business trip where he would kill 18-year-old Natalia Pokostova. And on August 27th, he killed an 18-year-old girl named Irina Golieva. That's so close together. But I guess if he's clustering them on his trips, he's got like a window and he just has to make it work, right? Yeah. God, it's awful. However, by December of 85, there was a significant police presence at his favorite hunting grounds and army helicopters had been assigned to fly along the railway lines and forests to keep watch from the sky. Chikatilo was spooked and he was smart. He stopped killing. Instead, like any good serial killer, he inserted himself into the investigation. Man, it's like, there's like a handbook, Mm -hmm. right? He assisted the militia in patrolling the trains looking for the serial killer that was haunting the people of the area. And you know he's like getting off on this. Oh, of course. It's disgusting. At the time, he was considered a quote-unquote freelance employee of the Department of Internal Affairs. And he knew where they were investigating, so he knew he couldn't kill, at least not there. That's so... It's like, you want to get help from the public and stuff like that. But at the same time, it's like, if you're giving that information to the wrong person... Yeah, you open the door to anybody. Yeah, that's awful. Whether he killed people during 1986, we don't know. There are no recorded victims throughout that whole year. He could have stopped altogether knowing that the police were everywhere, or he could have killed in surrounding areas and those victims haven't been found. But as far as we know, in 1986, Andre Chikatilo celebrated his 50th birthday 
by not murdering. Hmm. But I mean, you know, BTK went how many years in between? Like, it's definitely, and there's different reasons for it. Heat, they move, they get sick, they have an injury, they get incarcerated, like all kinds of things. Right. Police thought that someone like this who then stopped killing was either, in, okay, this is exactly what, <laughs> was either incarcerated, moved to another place, or dead. He couldn't just stop killing, right? Unfortunately, 1987 wouldn't be as quiet as 1986, though. By May, Chikatilo was killing again. On May 16, 1987, he killed a 13-year-old boy named Oleg Makareno, Makar- Makarenkov. I almost said Macarena, essentially. <laughs> it, yeah. His 35th known victim. My God. And this isn't a very short time frame. Yeah, super short for especially that many victims. Mm-hmm. Golly. On July 29th, his next victim was 12-year-old Ivan Bilovetsky. His attack on Ivan was so brutal and so forceful that the blade of the knife broke off inside Ivan and was found later by police. That's horrible. And these are such young kids. Oh my God, it gets younger. He kept killing and was now focusing more on boys. September 15th, 1987, he killed 16-year-old boy Yuri Tereshonok. April 1988, an unknown girl between 18 to 25 years old. May 14th, 1988, nine-year-old boy Alexei Varanko Nine years old. July 14th, 1988, 15-year-old boy, Yevgeny Muratov. And again, you know, we are just trying here, doing the best we can. Yep. Unfortunately, we do not know all the words and all the languages, so we will be making unintentional mistakes. In March 1989, he lured 16-year-old Tatiana Rizhova back to his daughter's old apartment. His daughter was going through a divorce and had moved back home with her parents. Chikatilo utilized her empty apartment frequently. That is horrible. Can you imagine being the daughter and finding this out later? Be like, are you fucking kidding me? You used my apartment to kill people. I honestly just cannot imagine finding out that you're father was a serial killer, but right. still. Yeah. yeah, and then that added layer of you, that's like, feels like a betrayal. It's like you used my apartment, like, you, I'm sure she felt guilt and probably vomited when she found out, like, my mm-hmm. gosh, that's horrible. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match, with Indeed. When I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform, with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites 
according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. So he promised young Tatiana alcohol and attempted to seduce her. When he couldn't perform, he stabbed her. But once she was dead, he realized he couldn't just leave her body there. So he used a kitchen knife to decapitate her and saw off her arms and legs. He wrapped the body parts in rags and clothes, tied the bundles to the sled of a neighbor, and just pulled it through the streets until he found a place to dump Tatiana's remains. (laughs) He pulled a sled through the streets. Yes. With a human body in it. So here's the fucking problem that I have. One of the many problems that I have with Andre. Mm Mm-hmm. He's entitled as fuck. He thinks that just because he wants to have sex or to kill people, he can just take it and mm-hmm. do it. Mm-hmm. However, he apparently wanted to have sex with this with Tatiana, but he couldn't perform, so he gets mad and throws a hissy fit mm-hmm. and murders her. Yeah. But if if she had willingly had sex with him... He would have killed her anyway. He's going to kill her anyway. Yeah. That's, I mean, it's just so fucking ridiculous. Yeah. And can you imagine... I mean, not to get like too brutal and gruesome and vivid here, but... The amount of force and effort and time it had to take with a kitchen knife to dismember her body. God, yeah. It's so sad. 16 years old. At least she was already dead. Yeah. If there has to be something good to say about this, which there's not. Mm -mm. Yeah, because being stabbed is a horrible way to go. Awful. Fuck Andre Chikatilo. Fucking hate this guy. I know. It's not over. Oh, my God. May 11th, 1989, eight-year-old boy Alexander Diakonov Diakonov would become victim number 42. June 20th, Alexei Moiseev, a 10-year-old boy, was killed. On August 19th, 19-year-old Helena Varga was unfortunate enough to be on Chikatilo's route while he was on his way to his father's birthday party. He saw her at a bus stop and offered to walk her home. Instead, he lured her to the woods where he stabbed her and cut out her uterus and sliced off part of her face. He never admitted to eating the uterus, but referred to it as pink and springy. And it was thought that he, quote unquote, nibbled it. I appreciate a case that has a lot of detail. I could have gone without knowing that. Yeah. Oh, my God. Then he wrapped her body in clothes and headed off to his dad's party. Was he on time to this party? Like, he didn't have blood on him? Like, how do you... It's like Andre's form of pre-gaming. Oh, yeah. Like, you're on the way to the party. You show up an hour late, covered in blood. Nobody asks any questions. I I can't imagine he didn't get anything on him, especially if he's going to then mutilate her body like why do that that's disgusting oh my god well especially with his preferred form of murder stabbing there will be blood Mm -hmm. yeah and what is it like andre's family they're like oh that's andre just shows up bloody late all the time so weird yeah because he can't be like i tripped and fell right There's a lot. I cut myself shaving. Yeah, and you would also think that he would have cuts on him too because of the nature of stabbing and you slip because of all the blood. Like, Mm -hmm. 
maybe he just carries a change of clothes with him everywhere because he, he never would have knows. to. I mean, he might. God. Yeah, he's carrying this knife on him, obviously. Where's he keeping that? Because you'd think it, I mean, I don't know what kind of knife it is, but you wouldn't think it'd be a little pocket knife, right? I think it would have to be something larger, like maybe not Crocodile Dundee right. size, but something bigger. Yeah. Oh, that's a knife. <laughs> yeah. His last victim. Of I'm 19- sorry about that. <laughs> I just need to, I'm sorry. You had to Crocodile Dundee. I it. did. <laughs> His last victim of 1989 was 10-year-old Alexei Kobotov. The young boy would bring his total up to 45 known victims by the end of 1989. So fucking mad at this guy. Mm -hmm. It was noted that in 1989, when the police began to see more mutilation, body parts missing, females often missing their uteruses and nipples, which he bit off. Yuck. And the male's genitals and tongues would be bitten off as well. God, brutal and gross. Yeah, I'm like, part of me for a split second envisioned it and I wish I had never, I wish I could go back. I just, I mean, in this situation, I hope to God that these people have already passed when this is happening. That's the only thing that you can hope for. Yeah, God. The police were desperately trying to catch this monster and brought in psychologist Alexander Bukanovsky. Yes, who created a profile on the suspect they would be looking for. Bukanovsky's profile went in the opposite direction from the previous police assumptions. Instead of a young perpetrator, he said their guy was most likely older, between 45 and 50, unsociable, sexually perverted, He said that this guy either lived alone or with his wife, but he wouldn't have a sexual relationship with her. Buganovsky called the man, the unknown man, a necrosadist, someone who achieves sexual gratification from the suffering and death of others. He's good. He's spot on. Yeah. Yeah. He's like, and my research is showing that his name is maybe Andre? Yeah. I don't know. Starts with an A, ends with a Chikatilo. Yeah. Yeah. But they still didn't have him, and Chikatilo continued to kill. Naturally, of course he did. January 14th, 1990, 11-year-old boy Andre Kravchenko. March 7th, 10-year-old boy Yaroslav Makarov. In April, a 31-year-old woman, Lubov Zyuyeva. On July 28th, 13-year-old boy Viktor Petrov. On August 14th, an 11-year-old boy named Ivan Foman became Chikatilo's 50th known victim. It's, like, disheartening. I don't know. I don't know the right word for it. It's it's so heavy and, like, God, it's just name after name after name. And, like, Tori and I were talking about this before we started recording again today. Like, with these kind of cases, it's... It's hard and you feel like you're not giving the victims the respect. Yeah, because there's so many that like we can't give, you know, a lot of background on every single one. And a lot of them, we most of, I mean, I don't think we have background on just about any of them. There's Mm -hmm. not anything out there. And it's just so unfortunate because the serial killer cases end up being about the serial killer and not... Focusing any on the victim, unfortunately, because 
Because we don't know. Yeah. There's just too many. Yeah. And there's so many. It's, it's just sad. On October 17th, 1990, 16-year-old Vadim Gromov was lured from a railway station that was under heavy surveillance for months. But this night, there was a shortage of manpower, so it was not patrolled. Chikatilo took advantage of the weakness. Vadim's body was found on November 3rd. Andre is like a fucking velociraptor and he checks the fence. Yes, yes. Yeah, because like he knows and he's keeping up with it. He's inserted himself so he knows where they're going to be, where they're not going to be. He's just testing the fence and he's like, oh, here's, here's a weak spot. Yeah. Ooh, that's creepy. He totally is. On October 30th, 1990, Chikatilo killed 16-year-old Victor Tyshenko. And then on November 6, 1990, Chikatilo met 22-year-old Svetlana. She went by Sveta Korostik, his final victim. And this was the one we talked about at the beginning. After he beat, stabbed, and mutilated her and returned to the train station looking suspicious, the officer that took Chikatilo's information filed a report. Thank God. Mm -hmm. That report was brought back out when Sveta's body was found, and on November 13th, Andre Chikatilo was put under surveillance. Seven days later, he was arrested while out looking for his next victim. All right, so now, boom, arrested. Mm -hmm. He is finally in custody. Once he was in custody at the KGB headquarters, Chikatilo was quiet. He didn't confess right away or brag about his crimes. That is until Alexander Bukanovsky asked to interview him. Bukanovsky basically stroked his fragile little ego until he was sufficiently flattered and started talking. I mean, this guy is the psychologist who knew exactly who he was looking for and knew exactly what to do with him. Exactly. Exactly. Totally exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Eventually, not only would Chikatilo demonstrate on dummies in the KGB gym how he tied up and murdered his victims, but he would also lead the officers to crime scenes and lead them to shallow graves with bodies they didn't even know about until then. In November, Chikatilo's apartment was searched. They found 23 knives, a hammer, and a pair of shoes that matched the footprint at the crime scene back in March of 84. Wow. That's a lot of knives. And a lot of evidence. Yeah, a lot of evidence. Chikatilo wasn't arguing that he had murdered all these people and confessed to at least 56 murders, but only 53 could be verified. (laughs) Only 53. And until he started talking, the police only knew of 36. He was, however, going to argue that he was insane when he did it. That didn't work, though, because after spending 60 days getting a psychiatric evaluation, he was declared sane and fit to stand trial. He was diagnosed with bipolar personality disorder with sadistic features, but he was sane, legally sane. Chikatilo was charged with 52 counts of murder and five counts of assault. His trial would start on April 14, 1992. The Soviet Union had recently collapsed, and this trial was the first big thing to happen in this post-Soviet era. Chikatilo, unlike most defendants, did not sit at the defense table with his lawyers. Due to the grieving families wanting blood and the very powerful emotions that were seen, it was thought that Chikatilo might be safer locked in an iron cage during the proceedings. So Chikatilo sat in a little jail cell in the courtroom and made a spectacle of himself throughout. He's such a jerk. (laughs) Yeah, (laughs) it's a good word for him. Yeah. 
He's just like, just a little shit. Yeah, he is. He's an absolute meanie head. Yeah. Yeah. I think he's a butt munch and a fart knocker. Totally. Total fart knocker. He had his head shaved following procedure to protect against lice, and he was wearing clothes that had been lent to him by the jail. It was reported that he sang songs, talked gibberish, acted bored, or was completely manic. Most people thought it was all an act to make his insanity seem real. I'm sure it was. He was just trying to... Because if if he was declared sane before the trial, but he acted like this throughout, then do we have a possibility that his defense attorneys could be like, well, we need a retrial because he obviously exhibited mm-hmm. behaviors that show that he was not sane or I don't know. Right. But being sane during the trial... Well, I guess then you wouldn't be competent to stand trial because that doesn't mean that you were insane when you committed the murders, but I guess you could get a retrial based on not being competent to stand trial if they were wrong. I mean, I think that, I mean, we know from this from talking about all kinds of cases that the defense is going to do whatever they have to to be like, no, we need a new trial. Yeah, exactly. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform, with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. The case was massive. There were 222 casebooks used in the trial, basically a textbook for lawyers that references cases so that they can refer to precedents. And it took two days just to read off the list of indictments. Holy shit. Two days. I was thinking like two hours would be a lot. Two days. That's so much. The trial lasted for six months, and during that, there was no shortage of places for Chikatilo and his lawyers to put the blame. They claimed that because of Stalin's agricultural collectivism, he'd grown up poor and starving. There was cannibalism in the town, and his own mother had told him that his older brother had been snatched by neighbors and eaten. They, of course, blamed his parents. His mother was called bitter and belittling, and she beat him when he wet the bed. The family lived in a one-room shack, and he shared a bed with her. One claim was that Chikatilo had witnessed something that left him damaged. According to rumors, Chikatilo, his defense, etc., while his father was a prisoner of war, Chikatilo's mom had been raped by a German soldier and gotten pregnant. This was backed up by the timeline of his baby sister's birth, as his father would have still been a prisoner of war when his mom got pregnant. Since Chikatilo and his mother shared a bed, and their shack was only one room anyway, young Andre would have witnessed this. Then they blamed the fact that his dad was a disgraced veteran, which had caused further hardship on the family and their hut was even burned down once. They even blamed the fact that Chikatilo claimed he couldn't see while he was in school 
And it wasn't until he was 30 that he got glasses. Was it like PTSD from needing glasses? That's the first I've heard of that defense. It's, I mean, it's creative. Yeah, I have bad eyesight. That's why I killed and dismembered and ate people. Yeah, 56 people. Yeah. Okay. Get your eyes checked, guys. Yeah. The blame was placed on everyone and everything except Chikatilo himself. But none of his blame game nonsense worked. On October 15th, 1992, the judge read the verdict of guilty on 52 out of 53 counts of murder. Andre Chikatilo was sentenced to death. I think no matter what you believe, or I think that if there was somebody who absolutely deserved the death sentence, Andre Chikatilo is one of them. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like there's no, I don't, I don't see any reason to keep somebody like this on the earth. Just personally. 53 people. And it, and he says it was 56. They just can't find those other three. And even let's say that he didn't do the 53, that he just did 52. 52 people. Mm-hmm. That's insane. There's no rehabilitating this man. No, yeah, absolutely not. He, there's no way to rehabilitate him. You can put him in therapy all you want. He's a waste of space. Yeah, he is, this is his, in the fiber of his being now. Yes. During the time he got to speak to the court where a normal person would apologize for their actions or something like that, Andre Chikatilo went on a two-hour rambling rant where he kicked the bench and screamed. Then in a dramatic attempt to gain sympathy or get attention or just to do it, he dropped his pants right in the middle of court and said that he had been robbed of his genitals and driven to murder. He said, look at this useless thing. Look at this useless thing. Don't make everybody else look at it. Yeah, don't make anybody look at it. Slap another charge on there. Exposure. Yeah. Oh my gosh. Like. It's, he's so woe is me. Yeah. And I, I mean, I'm sure that that sucks if you have trouble with that, you know, but certainly nobody deserves to die for it. I mean, look, life is tough. We say that a lot, like the famous boy meets world quote, life sucks and then you die, you know, but <laughs> it's something that we're all dealt cards and what you do with those cards shows your character and it may not be fair. But it's your choice to do with it what you will. Mm-hmm. Nobody else's problem. Nobody yeah. else gave, did this to you. You can't go around fucking murdering people because of it. Just right. because you have a small pecker. Yeah, exactly. Like, there's plenty of dudes with small peckers. Okay. Yes. Yeah. I mean. But it's, your ego is so inflated and important, obviously, to you. That because you have this issue, you will then turn around and murder somebody because you can't perform the way that you want to. This is nothing that they've done. And there's no evidence to say that anybody even made fun of him for it or anything like that. And even if they did, doesn't give you the right. Yeah, that's still not a a murder offense. (laughs) Like you can't do that. Mm -hmm. But it's like, yeah, you you are so self-important that other people should die for just you not feeling that great about yourself. Right. Get over it. Right. He did attempt an appeal that claimed that the evaluation that stated he was fit to stand trial was biased, but this didn't work. There you go. So yeah, that's exactly what he did. In the papers, he'd become known as the Maniac, the Red Ripper, or the Rostov Ripper. 
But whatever you called him, 16 months after he was sentenced on February 14th, 1994, Andre Chikatilo was taken to an empty soundproof cell and shot once in the back of the head behind his right ear, as was the execution procedure at the time. Wow. That's this is in the 90s. I know. Well, firing squad. Okay. That is a much more humane execution. Yeah, a much more humane execution than he gave all of his victims, so. Oh, yeah, absolutely. You know? Yeah. Like, it's not lethal injection, and I'm very glad that it, I don't know, I have, after the Green Mile, I have very weird feelings about mm -hmm, the electric chair. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and there's been situations like that with the lethal injection, too, where the people like survive it and it's like it's supposed to be like burning their bodies basically yeah where like the um ratios of stuff aren't mixed right or something like that yeah and they i don't think that there's any foolproof way of like doing a humane execution no. yet no i don't know if there ever will be no but yeah i mean and there's a lot of obviously there's a lot of other issues around that too oh but, of course right 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 but in this case that's what happened to this day, there are only really theories on why Chikatilo did this. Some say that he used the knife since he couldn't use his penis. Oh, and then I'm reminded of the Seven, uh, movie Seven. And that's a very obvious symbolism type of situation because of the strap-on thing and it was the knife, remember? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. There's also the idea that the rage of his life being bullied and impotent and disrespected just made him kill. None of Chikatilo's own explanations really tracked or made sense. But one thing he did say or write that made sense was a journal entry while he was in prison. And now my brain shall be taken apart piece by piece and examined so that there won't be any others like me. Well, that would be nice if there could be no others like him. I feel like if I've learned anything from cases like, because I'm reminded of John Wayne Gacy when he was executed and they took his brain and they studied it and they're like, mm, nothing different about this than anybody else's brain. Like they could not find any reason in like the wrinkles in his brain or whatever to be like, this is where, yeah, this is the serial killer part. Yeah. It would be nice, like you said, but I don't think that we're there yet. So, yeah, unfortunately, that's true. And I mean, it's definitely important to, you know, see some of those kind of like the hallmarks, you know, like we know about, I mean, he, he fit a lot of that. He was a bedwetter. Yes. He followed a pattern. Well, and let's say, because we've added a few like bullying. Mm-hmm. Joining the military. Like, it seems like a lot of them do join the military for whatever reason. Right. And I'm not, I don't think that it's the military's fault, but I think it's just a pattern that yeah. serial killers or people who are prone to murder, they follow themselves. It's something that yeah. appeals to them for whatever reason. Because they seem to also get kicked out of the military. Yes. Like, they but don't maybe last. This like subconscious need to have stability and structure in their lives and then they can't hack it. I don't mm -hmm. know. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know. Yeah. There's definitely like, he fit a lot of things. So it's it's important to see you know, in mom issues. Mm hmm. Yeah. Yeah. What kind of, what kind of situations or like red flags kind of? Yeah. Like commonalities do we see, you know, and then can we 
prevent some of that. But what do you do? Yeah, what do you do? Because you, if you see somebody kind of exhibiting those particular patterns, yeah, patterns, behaviors, whatever, like most of that is not now like arson and cruelty to animals are and both illegal. Sure. sure. Oh, well, sure, sure, sure. Yeah, like bedwetting's not illegal. But if you have all of that, I'm saying if you, if all three of those. Yeah. Yeah. So then what do you, yeah. Bedwetting should be illegal. <laughs> I'm just kidding. <laughs> yeah. So yeah, it's like, what do you do with that? Unless they are being arrested for other things, but still you get arrested for arson. How long is that that you're going to be in there? You're just going to, you know, you get out and you just keep on and amping it up. But I do feel like, yeah, do you, because is it, is it fair or is it safe to be like, okay, this kid is exhibiting signs of becoming a murderer. So let's go ahead and let's get them like the psychiatric help that they need. Well, I've heard of people who are very, very offended that their children have been diagnosed with ADD. Like, mm-hmm. and that is, they're not the same, obviously, but I feel like you're, it's a slippery slope because people don't want to hear these things about their own children. I can't imagine. Right. Yeah. Yeah. They don't want to, they don't want to accept it. They block it out. Yeah. Not my kid. Yeah, exactly. What can we do with that? I don't know. Yeah. Yeah. It's the whole thing is fucked. Yes. Life sucks. Then you die. Yep. Well, thank you so much for listening. <laughs> Let's leave it on a high note. Life sucks, then you die. Um, yeah, but Yikes. um, yeah, there's really no high note here, so I don't, I don't really know what to do with that. But um, if you're still here, uh, you know, thanks for hanging in. This was a tough case. Thanks again to Caitlin James for requesting it, and thank you to Sloan for researching. Yes. And I'm going to I'm going to put this out there. Maybe it'll be a little bit of a sun sh- ray of sunshine on this cloudy ass case. If you want something that has to do with the case, in my opinion, go watch Jurassic Park. It's a great movie. Velociraptors testing the fence. Oh, do you yeah, know what yeah, I mean? yeah. Yeah, see them in action basically. Sure. Yeah. See those clever girls. Yeah. Also, um he's a creepy looking fucker, so you'll have to check the uh the Instagram and we're not going to post the one with uh, his no. <laughs> tiny, teeny, tiny pecker out. Yeah, absolutely not. Nobody needs to see that. I'm still seeing it. I don't, I don't want to see it. I know. Okay. <laughs> All right. Well, out. we will catch you next week. Bye. Bye. Okay, guys. So this part two ended up being just a little bit shorter than we were, we would like for a second episode to be or a full length episode to be. So in order to make up for that, we are gifting you guys with one of our murder mixtapes. So you can kind of get a taste for that and you get a bonus case today, this week. Yay! Yay! So we do the murder mixtape every week. It's just, it's literally just a bonus case that we do. We drop them on Wednesdays. So our regular episodes drop Saturdays, mixtapes go on Wednesdays. And then we do Doc Jams on Fridays, which is our docu-series coverage. So this will just kind of give you a little taste of the mixtape. And if you want extra cases, you can always join the Patreon and get them every week. And there's like, we're on episode mixtape 82 this week. So you've got 82 to binge if you've not listened to any of them. So there are reasons to go back and re-listen to them. I would say so. Um, But without further ado, here it is. Hey, hey, hey. Hey. 
Mixtape. Hey, 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 I'm what's happening. Wow. It's Missy Elliott. All right. If you threw some Mandy Moore in there, I'd probably get you. <laughs> hey, 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 I'm missing you like candy. Hey, 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 I'm nothing but pennies in my pocket. Remember when we thought it was panties? Because that's what it sounded like. Because that's what, how she says it, yeah. Nothing but panties in my pocket. Panties? It's pennies, Mandy. Rose, why do you have so many panties in your pocket, weirdo? <laughs> Good. Yeah. Sex offender. Ah, candy. Candy. I'm missing you like candy is going to take a whole nother turn. Oh my God. Okay. So you guys, in this episode today, somebody's getting thrown right out the window. I don't know who it is. When we were watching things to brush up on the case, everybody got thrown out of a window. Yeah. We're not near each other right now, so we can't physically throw each other out the window. Wherever you are, just... I don't know. Somebody's getting thrown out a window. Yeah. That's all I know. How was that? Miss KB's watching this. And I told him that I was going to throw him out the window. And he said, no, take the dog instead. <laughs> I was like, dad. Well, sometimes you got to save yourself, you know? True. Did he watch it too? Yeah. Well, in between naps, sure. Oh, sure. Okay. Okay. Well, I was hearing the sweet cacophony of snoring. So I knew he wasn't watching it. <laughs> yeah. He was, maybe he dreamed about it, you know? Talk about a nightmare. Thank you to Angelica and Zisa for requesting this case. It's a doozy. It sure is. Y'all, it's the Friday. It's Friday the 13th. It's a Friday the 13th case. Yeah, it is. That's like creepy already. Mm Mm-hmm. Plus, it's just messed up. Yeah. So this is Friday the 13th of June in 1980, which was also coincidentally the week in 1980, when the first Friday the 13th movie opened. Oh, whoa. Alan Gore had left his home in Wiley, Texas for a business trip to St. Paul, Minnesota late that afternoon. Man, it was 100% snowing there. In Minnesota? <laughs> well, no, but it's always, I feel like it's always cold there. Okay, I was like, wow, they get snow in June. That sucks. <laughs> Got me. Um His wife, 30-year-old Betty Pomeroy Gore, who was back home in Wiley, couldn't stand to be left alone, even for one night. Sounds like somebody else I know. Bing, 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 (laughs) bing. Yeah, Andrew's going out of town in a couple weeks, and my friend is going to come over and stay with me. (laughs) Naturally. Naturally. Also, Betty was incredibly nervous in this day in particular because she was late for her period and suspected she might be pregnant with their third child. She had suffered from postpartum depression since the birth of their first daughter, Elisa, and was very worried. But this trip of Alan's would be easier on her because she was planning a vacation for the family. In just a week, they would be in Europe without the children for the first time in four years. That's huge. If she wasn't going, if she wasn't already pregnant, she was going to be pregnant after that trip. Oh, for sure. Yeah. One of the two. A few hours after arriving in Minnesota, Alan attempted to call Betty, but nobody picked up. He called her several more times over the next few hours, but he never got an answer. He had started calling friends and neighbors, asking them to go to the house and check on Betty and their two girls, seven-year-old Elisa and baby Bethany. Alan also called a close friend from church, 30-year-old Candy Montgomery, who told him that Elisa was staying the night with her family after seeing the new Star Wars movie that evening. She told him that she'd also seen Betty around 10 o'clock that morning. Candy said that she went to their house, Betty and Alan's house, 
while the kids were at vacation Bible school to pick up Elisa's bathing suit and that everything appeared to be fine when she was there. Neighbors visited and reported back to Alan that everything seemed normal, but as the day went on, he became more insistent that the neighbors needed to go back and check the house again. Finally, around 10 p.m. that night, three men from the neighborhood returned to the Gore home, and this time they tried the front door and found it unlocked. The men were immediately drawn to the loud cries of Bethany in her crib. When they found her in her room, she was dehydrated and weighed down with a dirty diaper. Poor baby. I know. So hungry, I'm sure. Yeah, starving, I'm sure. One of the men took Bethany to his house and had his wife call 911 while he returned to the Gore home. Realizing something was terribly wrong, the other men went through the rest of the house. When they entered the kitchen, the utility door stood partially open, and there they spotted Betty. She was soaked in blood, her face so disfigured she was barely identifiable. The men initially thought Betty had shot herself in the head, but they would come to find out that she'd actually been hacked to death by someone wielding a three-foot axe. She'd been hit an estimated 41 times, and of the 41 wounds, 28 were to the head. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform, with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. We got to... We got to go back. Because how in the world did this happen? Right, exactly. And we can't know that unless we go back to the beginning. And Hillary is going to take us there. Hillary is just the man for the job. (laughs) That's the ticket. (laughs) Back to when the earth, the sun, the stars all Because Betty Eileen Pomeroy Gore was born on what January What a name. 9. Yes, totally. I like Pomeroy better than Gore. I do too. Oh, it's never just, mind. I was thinking the waitress, but that's Pomodor. Pom- Pomodor. Dr. Pomodor. Yeah. Yeah. I have to go deliver babies because that's what I do. <laughs> <laughs> she was born on January 9th, 1950 in Norwich, Kansas to Bob and Bertha Pomeroy. She went to college at Southwestern College in Witchfield, Kansas, where she obtained a degree in teaching. It was in college that Betty met and fell in love with her TA in her freshman math class, TA's teaching assistant, Alan Gore. Betty and Alan had a short courtship and married on January 25th, 1970 in Norwich Methodist Church. 
The couple moved to Dallas, Texas, shortly after the birth of their first daughter, Elisa, in the summer of 1974. Alan's new job kept him traveling a lot back and forth between Dallas and their home in Wiley. Betty was very active in her community and the church. That's where she met Candy and Pat Montgomery at the Lucas Methodist Church. Candy Montgomery, her real name was Candace, but she went by Candy, really enjoyed her role as a housewife, especially the cooking and decorating, and she was a devoted mother. However, after years of marriage, Candy found herself deeply bored. She'd married Pat Montgomery in the early 70s when he was a young, bright electrical engineer at Texas Instruments. That's T.I., right? Well, and that's where our beloved... Not T.I. the rapper, but like (laughs) T.I. 83. Yeah, T.I. 83 calculators came from. Yeah, I was like, the Texas Instruments? (laughs) It's like nerding out for sure on calculators. (laughs) Yeah, thank God they let Tetris be on there. And Snake, remember Snake? (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Because I certainly don't remember algebra at all. (laughs) No, but Snake was the bomb. Yeah, I love those calculators. I remember like <laughs> having to get one in like what, 10th grade or whatever. And I'm like, yes, I get to get one. It's like basically having your own computer. Well, yeah. And you got one year, two years before I got one. And then mom and dad were like, hey, you'll just use Torella's old one. I'm like, oh no, the hell I will not. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but they were like, what, $70? So like, how were we supposed to afford that? I know, true. I really don't remember how much they were, but I know they're really expensive. And I was like, well, for a fucking calculator. I know. And like when now it's like you have a phone and that's (laughs) it's wiped out every other piece of technology. Yeah, exactly. Okay. So anyway, he worked, Pat worked at TI. Yes. Celebrity status. Got it. And she had grown up as an army brat, constantly moving from base to base. She was confident, playful, and young. And thanks to Pat's $70,000 income, she was living comfortably. That's pretty impressive in the 70s. Hell yeah. I I don't want to give anything away, but calling Candy a brat, it's fitting, I think. I know. I was like, yeah, totally a brat. I feel like, and I know you're not supposed to type people or whatever, but I feel like she's an Enneagram 8. What's an Enneagram? Give us a little insight on Enneagram 8s. Very like, not necessarily always abrasive, but they're just like, they're very confident. Dave Ramsey is an Enneagram 8. He's decisive. He makes, he, he has no, he doesn't have to look to anybody else for how he feels about something. He's decisive. He's confident in his decisions. He can talk to people. You know, he doesn't ever feel intimidated by people. What is that like? I know. <laughs> I know. I'm like, I'm scared just talking about it. I don't, yeah. But the way they described her, she seemed very much like that. Like she's kind of that presence that took over the meeting. She always had her opinions heard at the church or whatever committee she was on. Like she was heading it up. She was making all this decision. She's the leader. Follow me. I'm the leader. That's her. <laughs> yes. Okay. She's Mac. Yeah. Exactly. Candy and Betty had a lot in common. They sang together in the church choir. Their daughters were best friends, and their husbands had good jobs working for technology companies in the North Dallas suburbs known as Silicon Prairie. Their friendship changed when Candy developed feelings for Alan during a church volleyball game in 1978, during which the two collided while making a move to hit the ball at the same time. After choir practice one day, Candy confessed her feelings to Alan. 
who told her he loved his wife too much to have an affair. Well, good for Alan. Yeah, so far. Kind of. Um, (laughs) (laughs) Also, what is this? It's like high schoolers. Like they- 100%. Yeah. (laughs) She bumped into him and that's when she knew. She's like, oh my God, I saw him after math class. And when we were walking to gym, I could like, like, yeah, shut up. You're playing a volleyball game. Get your own husband. She already has one. She don't want him. Get one you want. She's got Pat the dog and she don't want him. Yeah, I'm annoyed with her as fuck. Yeah, same. But Alan was having marital problems with Betty, who had become distant in their marriage. After the birth of Elisa, Betty never could seem to regain a sense of happiness. Oh my God, this is so sad because like, this is part of it. And like, it really fucking pisses me off. I'm not trying to rant here, but like men's (laughs) lives don't change. They don't change. And so here, Alan is like, Wah. I mean, and it, I know it's a, it's a thing, but like, wah, my wife isn't, you know, she's a little distant towards me now. She's going through severe emotional distress and hormonal distress from having a child. That's not an excuse to have an affair. Well, no. And also it just kind of pisses me off because yeah, men, well, okay. That's not very fair to say that men's lives don't change. They change immensely because their wives um, don't care about them anymore. And they aren't happy the way that they're like a husband needs their wife wife to be happy all the time. Happy and smiling all the time. <laughs> always ready to have yeah. sex. Always having uh-huh. food on the table. Keeping yeah. the house clean. And yeah. if you're trying to sit here and act like men don't have it rough after having a baby, I'm not going to stand for it. Well, that's like bad mouthing the United States of America now, isn't it? It is. It but very that, much so is. That loss of sense of self is so prevalent. And in the 70s, they didn't even really know much about postpartum depression. And honestly, I still really don't think they do. But they would just give Betty Valium, which is just going to, what, zone her out even more? I've never had Valium, but doesn't it like, no just kind of zone you out or something? I don't know. Or like make you fall asleep. I don't know. But... They didn't we're know what it was. Dinged. Oh no, it's this is the mixtape. I was gonna say we we're gonna get dinged for this because we don't know what the effects of volume are. Jesus, I know. I am so Yeah. <laughs> Not to I'll, rant I'll again, go, but <laughs> I won't go into that right now. But I mean, and and to be fair, I mean, we're, you know, we're kind of joking here, but I mean, obviously, like both mom and dad, their lives change some. Some more than others. But, and it is, it does put a strain on a marriage. Like, I do understand that. It's just, there's such a lack of communication. And I think a lack of, especially at this time, an understanding of what happens to your body when you have a child that, I don't know. And once you kind of have that divide there, it's so much easier for it to just widen instead of we come together. And because it's hard for people to articulate, if you don't even know what's wrong with you, You know, like you Mm -hmm. just feel like there's something wrong with me and I don't know what it is. Yeah. Yeah. It's it's really sad. sad. Three weeks after Candy confessed her feelings to Alan, he called her on her 29th birthday and asked her to meet him in an auto repair shop in McKinney, Texas. For weeks, the two discussed at length the rules of the affair and that there would be no emotional attachment involved. I am so, I'm, okay. (laughs) 
The fact that they laid it out like a business deal is... Yeah, this is premeditated adultery. Like, it's just... You're planning it out so much. It's it's honestly more hurtful. I mean, I think oh, either yeah. way is more hurtful, but it's like if they just both happen to like be at the church. I mean, I would hope it wouldn't happen at the church, but you know, that seems to be where uh, they meet we've up. We've covered like, that snapped yeah, episode true. where they were doing it in the back of a pickup truck in a church parking lot. Yeah. Oh gosh. Yeah. But it's like, if you just happen to be the last two people somewhere and I don't know, it's just like, it just kind of happened. Still super sucks, but it's like they, he... He had so many times to be like, this is not right. This is not right. This is not right. I'm not going to do this. I'm not going to do this. She had so many times. This is my friend. I'm not going to fuck her husband. Mm-hmm. What the fuck? Finally, after careful planning, the affair began at the Continental Inn on December 12th, 1978. Honestly, all they were doing was just ratcheting up the sexual tension every time they talked about it, but didn't do it. Yeah, I kind of feel like it. that would give me a lot of anxiety. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So not sexual tension for you then. I'm an anxious person. Because so. <laughs> <laughs> it's like every time they meet up and they're like, so when we have all the sex, not today, we're not going to have right. the sex today. No <laughs> sex today. But when we do have the sex and it's like, okay. For the next four months, the two would meet up at the Como Motel every other week. At the same time, Candy continued to play the perfect housewife, held play dates between her children and the Gore kids, and she even threw Betty a baby shower when she became pregnant with their second daughter. What a fucking bitch. I cannot, cannot with this bitch. I'm honestly surprised that it was only every other week. I guess that was the rule, right? Well, I mean, I get it if it's, you gotta check your contract, like. Yeah, I mean, otherwise you're gonna be charged an extra, extra bank fee. I don't know. I don't know what the rules are, but. Yeah. Yeah. I want to take one of those little cucumber sandwiches, you know, you get at baby showers and shove it down her throat. Oh. I don't like her. Well, shove it I up mean, her nose. I don't know. Shove it somewhere. Torella, that's harsh. Well, and a waste of a I good feel. cucumber sandwich. Well, that's true. I really want one now. I know. Um, Why did you have to say something about them? I know. It sounds really good, actually. Over the next several months, Candy and Alan continued their affair, sneaking off whenever possible. However, their affair became less and less frequent once Betty gave birth to Bethany. Feeling guilty about lying to Betty and Pat, Candy suggested ending the affair and they decided to think it over. This is so stupid. They're like, okay, so I am now presenting a proposal to you that we end this affair. I will give you 48 hours from today. You may fax me your response. (laughs) Sign on the dotted line. Like, the fuck? As per my email, I would <laughs> yeah. like to discuss As the dis- disillusion of... Yeah. Oh, my God. Meanwhile, Betty had begun noticing changes in her husband and felt very depressed by his lack of desire to have sex with her. Soon afterward, Betty and Alan attended a marriage counseling session at their church, which helped them understand each other more clearly and resulted in Alan and Candy calling off their affair shortly thereafter. It did not help them understand each other more clearly because Alan is withholding information that is the exact reason why he is withdrawn and not wanting to have sex with her. Yeah, exactly. So it's like, okay, I just feel better now. It's like, okay, so... Because I guarantee Betty went there completely honest, open, Mm -hmm. all of her shit laid out. And he was like, okay, I have nothing else to add to this. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. 
At first, detectives thought that the killer was an escape mental patient or a cult killing. 70s are fucking wild, man. Or 80s, I, I guess. I know. Well, I like, mean, I think the beginning and end of decades, they blur together, so. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, because it's like not a cult killing. Okay. And an escape mental patient, like if they had one that was on the loose that was killing people, I could see that. But Friday the 13th, man. I guess. Yeah. Well, yeah. They're like, you know, there was this movie, so I bet that's it. I mean, people do copycat, but still, it's just funny that that was their initial reaction. It's like, those are both really far-fetched. I know, but they're like, oh, it must must be a man wearing a hockey mask. Exactly. (laughs) Then they turned their attention to her husband, Alan. His alibi was airtight, but something didn't sit well with the police. He was somewhat cold and detached with the way he answered their questions. Police continued their investigation, questioning friends, relatives, Then they took a closer look at the person who last saw Betty alive, which was Candy. She told the investigators that she went to Betty's house earlier in the day to pick up a bathing suit for Elisa. She claimed Betty was alive and well when she left. The police questioned her several times, but her version of the day's events and of her relationship with the Gores was always the same. In the meantime, new facts were coming to light, such as the killer had showered after the murder. They found hair in the shower drain and blood on the tile wall of the shower, and there were bloody footprints on the shower mat. They found bloody footprints under the body and footprints leading out of the house. On the kitchen table, investigators found a blood-smeared newspaper open to the movie page to an ad for The Shining, a movie where Jack Nicholson's character famously hacks through doors with an axe. There was also a very clean imprint in blood of a thumb on the freezer door. The day before Alan was scheduled to do a lie detector test, he called the detectives to inform them that he hadn't been completely forthcoming. He did, in fact, have an affair with Candy Montgomery. He said that they met at a motel every other week for a year. That's a long time. It's a very long time. That's such a long time. And meanwhile, they're like having get-togethers and cookouts and barbecues and all the, all the things. That makes me absolutely fucking sick because you know that like, on Sunday at church, they're like probably sitting in the same pew or whatever, and they would give each other like a little look or whatever, or like a mm-hmm. a slight touch or whatever. Oh, that makes me so mad. Mm-hmm. He said that he'd ended the affair many months before the murder. It was a shocking revelation that sent the investigation in a totally new direction because... <laughs> Because they were going to get real far with the axe murderer from the mental <laughs> hospital or whatever. Um, come on. It could happen. It could happen. But this gives the police a motive. So the police realized that the shoe prints that were found in the house in blood were a smaller size, which they thought maybe would be a female assailant. Did then she poop were- in the toilet? <laughs> Scary poops. Then they were given a positive ID on the thumbprint found on the freezer, and it was Candy's. That's a big deal. The Mm -hmm. hair in the shower drain was also Candy's, and I feel like in that, at that time, the only way they knew that was to look at the hair and be like, it looks like her hair, but it it was her hair. But the thing is, it's like, it wouldn't be uncommon for her thumbprint or her prints to be at the house because she frequented the house to be in blood. Yes, in the blood, because we know the blood happened during the attack. Exactly. With the information from Alan and the new evidence that they had, they formally arrested Candy and charged her with Betty's murder. 
For a while, Candy denied everything. A few days later, Candy was out on a $100,000 bond and went home to be with her family. She resumed life as normal, even attending church. She quickly hired a lawyer she knew from church, Don Crowder, to represent her. Crowder, a partner in a small firm, usually handled personal injury work. Cannot believe this. He'd never been close to a murder case before. As he began to dig into the case, he realized he was going to need help getting the memories of that day out of Candy. Why? I'm rolling my eyes so hard. (laughs) Crowder enlisted the help of a Houston psychiatrist, Dr. Fred, is it Faison? I think so. Dr. Faison used hypnosis in his questioning of Candy. While under hypnosis, she apparently revealed a traumatic event from when she was six years old. She had hurt herself and her mother had to take her to the doctor for stitches. While at the doctor, Candy threw a fit and was screaming and she wouldn't stop. Candy's mother scolded her to be quiet and kept saying, shh, as if like, don't express your pain, don't show that you're hurt, just shh, you'd act like you're fine. Dr. Faison believed that he had found in the memory of her mother's discipline at a painful moment, the trigger of Candy's rage. When the trial began, after months of hinting at alibis and alternate suspects, her attorney shocked everyone by saying that Candy would be pleading self-defense. Candy took the stand in her defense in court. She explained that when she arrived at the Gore house that day, she was unexpectedly confronted by Betty about her affair with Alan. This is such a lie. This is such a lie. Well, it's such a lie, but also let's say that it's true. It's not, but we'll say it's true. So this is classic narcissism because if it's true, which it's not, but if it's true, Candy's like, she, so you, you create a situation where you do something wrong and then you blame the other person for it. Somebody's trying to hold you accountable for your behavior and you're like, well, they, look what they did to me. No. Yeah, she confronted me and I had to defend myself. Yeah, you did that to your fucking self and also it just didn't happen. Yeah, it did not fucking happen. At first, Candy said she tried to deny it, but that Betty presented her with cards and letter that Candy had given to Alan. Letters. Did they find the cards and letters out? Um, I have no idea. No. Yeah. They didn't talk about it, so... No. That didn't happen. Candy tried to reassure Betty that the affair was long over, but she said that Betty refused to accept it. Candy said that Betty retrieved an axe and told her, you can't have him. Candy said she then stated, it's okay, Betty, I didn't really want him. Which, of course, just added insult to injury. She says Betty just kept saying you can't have him. I'm sorry. She's living a fantasy. Yeah, because Betty's personality was very... Meek and mild. Meek, yeah, she... If Betty was going to confront somebody, she would have confronted Alan. I don't think that she... Betty was not the kind of person that would have gone Carrie Underwood on somebody's ass. No, and also, you also have to think about the fact that Betty's daughter was sleeping over at Candy's house that night. You better fucking guarantee that if I found out that, you know, friend over here is having an affair with my husband or had been, I'd be like, you know what? Sleepover canceled. I want her right now. But instead, Candy left there with the bathing suit for that little girl. So, no, none of this happened. Candy got there. They chit-chatted like friends. She got the bathing suit and then she fucking hacked her with an axe. Like none of the other stuff happened because she wouldn't have given her all that, you know? Exactly. And let's say that the letters and the cards happened and you brought up the perfect point of like, where did they go? Because in the, in the event that that actually happened, which of course it did not, 
they're in a tussle, right? Immediately. Now we're like struggling and we've got an ax and all these things. Nobody was like, hang on, let me put these away real quick. Yeah. I don't want them to get messed up. Yeah. And they showed some crime scene photos like of the area. There's no cards or letters strewn about. There's no proof that Betty even knew about the affair. Exactly. There's no proof of that at all. And I don't believe that she did. No. Because Alan certainly didn't fucking tell her. Right. Even after she thought her marriage was great. She was planning. She was so excited about her trip to Europe alone with him for a week. Mm -hmm. That very next week. There's no way. If... If I had just found out that my husband had been having an affair with somebody, I would be like, trip's not canceled. I'm fucking going. You're no longer invited, bitch. <laughs> like that, that would have been a whole thing. But she was everybody that she talked to. She was excited about getting ready for it and packing. Just so much just didn't happen. Okay. So she says, Betty comes in with the ax, you know, you can't have him. Well, I didn't want him anyway. Well, you can't have him, blah, blah, blah. So then Betty comes at her with the ax and they, struggled. Candy did receive a hit from the axe to the head and one to the toe, but somehow Candy said she got control of the axe and struck Betty on the head. She told the court that during the attack, Betty looked at her and goes, shh. And that triggered that moment that she had repressed and she just fucking lost it. That never fucking happened. It never happened. It never happened. Oh my God. It never happened. At that point, Candy said she fell into a dreamlike state and she didn't even know that she was striking Betty repeatedly. Then the next thing she knew, she found herself standing in Betty's shower with her clothes on. After gathering her thoughts, Candy said that she drove home to put some new clothes on and then went back to the Bible study as if nothing had happened. Did nobody ask her like, hey girl, why'd you change clothes? Yeah, it's weird. And if this was self-defense, which it's not, it wasn't. Right. If it was, why wouldn't she have reported that? Exactly. Uh, and left that little baby in the crib for 12 hours? hours? Yes. Because she's trying to hide. Y- y- exactly. I cannot with her. So the psychiatrist, Dr. Faison, testified during trial that when Betty said shh to Candy during the attack, it brought back a flood of repressed hostility that Candy held toward her mother that touched off a violent dissociative reaction. That this reaction made Candy lose control. It fueled an inner rage from her childhood and resulted in the repeated blows that ultimately killed Betty. Dr. Faison described that phenomenon as a form of neurosis that can prompt out-of-body experiences. Sufferers sometimes do things without knowing it during bouts of amnesia, sleepwalking, or dream states. Okay, so let's say that that's true. It of course is not, but let's say that it is. She's not safe to be out in public because who knows? Exactly. Somebody, she could hear a mother shushing her child and then fly into a fit of rage. Yeah, exactly. How many times do you hear shh on a daily basis? Oh, I've said it multiple times. I'll shush you real quick. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> it, yeah, she's not, she's not safe to be out for that reason. Yeah. And you guys, you guys, you guys, you guys, the jury deliberated for four and a half hours and they came back with a not guilty verdict. Not guilty. She fucking hacked her with an axe. 41 times. <gasps> Lizzie, Lizzie Borden, Borden took an axe. Took an axe. 41. When Ew. she saw what she had done, she gave her father 41. Oh my God. I just got chills. Yeah, well, it's I really did. That's crazy. <sighs> yeah. So 
she got a not guilty verdict. I cannot. Now would be the time to throw somebody out the window. Oh yeah, this is, I think you probably already did throw somebody out the window, but if you haven't yet, we'll pause. Okay. Yeah. Throw them out the window. They deserve it. Okay. (laughs) And then come back and we'll finish. Like my God, I can't, I cannot. So obviously a lot of people in the community were like, are you fucking kidding me right now? So they would yell murderer at her all the time. And like, because she fucking was a murderer. Oh, because yeah, she was. Pat was still married to her at this point. So they left when they were leaving the courthouse together. Everybody's yelling murderer, all this stuff. Alan immediately married his neighbor, Elaine Clift, a few months after Candy's trial ended. The two allegedly started their relationship within a couple weeks of Betty's murder. What the fuck? I get that you got to move on. I get it. I get it. I get it. Two weeks after her brutal murder? That's spitting in the face of your former wife. And you, you were telling everybody how you went on this marriage retreat. Your marriage was so much better. You know, like, it's not like you're in the middle of this affair and you were kind of like emotionally detached from her anyway. He's acting like they're back on good terms. I think a couple weeks ago when I arrived at your house and dropped my Starbucks, I grieved that longer than (laughs) you did. Alan grieved the loss of his wife. Yeah, because I made you a homemade one and sure, you took that relationship, but it wasn't the same. No, it was not. You didn't feel it in your heart. (laughs) No, because it wasn't real. What I had with the Starbucks was real. Was real. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, you're exactly right. You grieved that longer than you're still grieving it, honestly. I mean, it was a hard day. It It was a hard day. But like, yeah, he was just like, okay, everything's going so much better. Marriage is going great. Uh, uh, Can we talk about the fact that your wife could have been pregnant with your third child at that point? Yeah. Who cares? Let me just marry somebody else. I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. I don't, I don't like it. Betty's two daughters did not have a good relationship with Alan and the new stepmother and were both later adopted by their maternal grandparents who lived in Kansas. I feel like Alan just decided, okay, new start. starting over. Exactly. We'll call the first one uh, a good practice run. First attempt. We'll just start it all over again. Yeah, exactly. In an interview, one of the daughters said that when she was 10, her stepmother made her read Evidence of Love, the true crime book that detailed her father's affair and her mother's death. I had to give her a little summary after each chapter, she said. What a fucking bitch. What the fuck? That's danger, mentally dangerous. That's mental abuse. Mm-hmm. My God. 10. At 10. At 10. Alan and and so and she was that's only three years after it happened. If this is the if this is the older daughter, if it's Elisa, yeah. Jesus, Alan and Elaine eventually divorced. No, it didn't last. <laughs> that's sad. I'm sure Alan was already married to someone else, so it's fine. Yeah, exactly. He was like, actually, I already got married, so this one's gonna have to end. After giving up custody to Betty's parents, he became estranged from his daughters. He lives in Eastport, Maine, with his new wife. Betty, you were right. Betty's two daughters, Elisa and Bethany, have both married and have gone on to have children. Pat and Candy stayed together after the trial. They sold their house and moved east to Georgia. The couple eventually divorced. As of December 2010, Pat was living in Norcross, Georgia. Candy now lives in Dawsonville, Georgia, and goes by her maiden name, Candace Wheeler. She either works or, at the last time that she was doing this was 2017. 
alongside her daughter as a mental health therapist to teens and adults suffering from depression. So Betty's brother, who was in, okay, we'll um, we'll link below the different things you can watch on it. But in the um, Deadliest Decade, the 80s episode, her brother was like, yeah, you know, I know she works as a therapist. So I thought about making an appointment with her and being like, you know, I have a lot of problems because somebody murdered my sister with an axe. <laughs> like that gives me chills too. I just cannot believe she is walking around And like, to your point, this proves exactly her story was a lie because she, she would have flown into a fit of rage at some point. People shush all the time. If she's working with teens and adults, like somebody in an appointment has been like, shh, it's okay. Or given a hug or, you know, I'm just like. Yeah. There have been plenty of times that you hear the word or hear shush. You're you're being shushed. Yeah. And. It's just, yeah, it's just fucking ridiculous. Cause like, I mean, like we talked about earlier, if, if she, if that is so intense for her, just that word, and it triggers something in her that makes her brutally murder someone, she does not need to be out in the world. Exactly. No one is safe with her around. But the fact of the matter is she's a fucking liar. So yeah, a hundred percent. Um, there is an upcoming Hulu limited series on the case called Candy, and it's going to be starring Elizabeth Moss. Pretty big. I really enjoy this news, and I'm excited about it. I know, because also it's going to turn her world upside down if she is still working somewhere. Because, you know, people, I mean, if enough people watch it, people are going to be like, the fuck? I don't, I do not agree with cancel culture. I think that it's really, really ridiculous, and it can make people it can ruin people's lives. However, Candy needs to... She's not had any accountability. Pay some retribution. Yeah. yeah. She needs She needs to own what she's done. Yeah. And I mean, so I've thought about this too because I'm like, that is a slippery slope, right? Because if you're found not guilty of a crime, because there Double are people Jeopardy, right? who... Well, yeah, but there are people who um, are actually innocent of a crime and then, you know, they'll have like, what, a wrongful conviction and then they go back to court again and then they're found not guilty. But there are people who are like, well, I still think they did it. Yeah. Um, So that can be dangerous, but everybody knows she did it. Like she admitted that she did it. (laughs) Yeah. And, and, and it's just a fucking lie that Betty came at her with an axe, like, and she left a gun at the crime scene too because like at the crime scene they found a gun that's why the people initially that found her thought she shot herself in the head or the face with a shotgun because there was a shotgun laying down next to her and they just didn't know the axe was almost like under like the The refrigerator oh washing machine that's right so they didn't it wasn't apparent to the just neighbors coming to check, but they saw the gun next to her and they're like, oh my God, she's committed suicide. Mm-hmm. Like why go through all those steps if this is self-defense? There's no need for that. Exactly. And took a shower in her fucking bathroom. I cannot. Yeah. And listen, had to have listened to that baby scream the whole time mm-hmm. because you know, that child, if, if the baby was probably napping or whatever, you know, she heard it, heard the scuffle, the blows, and the, the screams yeah. probably. Yeah. She and then. Scared. Candy goes back to church. Vacation Bible school. Hey, everybody. Oh. So. I hate Candy Wheeler. Yeah. Candace Wheeler. Well, that's it. 
Yeah, that's it. I'm going to just rage if I talk about it more. Yeah, I think we've I think we've said all we can say here. I think we're good. Yep. But um, you know. Oh, thanks to Brittany for researching this case. Yes, girl, we love you. We love you. And you know, we'll catch you next week. Thank you so much. Bye. Bye. Before we go away, <laughs> we just want to do some shout-outs for some of our new patrons. So, um, hey girl, thanks to Chloe M, Helen, Amy K, Lori, Melissa M, Fireball S, ooh, Tegwin, Sky, see, sorry, Jen M, Emily, Kayana H, Jennifer C, Cassidy, Marie P, Sarah L, Mackenzie R, Tilly A, Ashley T, Elena P, Mariah W, Katie C, Haley H, Olivia C, Julie H, Dejeri C, Red Rose N, Megan L, Catherine F, Stephanie G, Jane T, Lisa Marie U, Lindsay G, Carrie J, Stacy R, Kimberly G, Men Sugar Cookies. Ooh, I like that. Riley M. Helen L. Amanda F. Raina. Krista. Melissa F. Blythe. Daphne J. Elizabeth W. Taylor S. Samantha P. Kista H. Ashley. Athena D. Heather W. Miranda. Charlene M. Michaela V. Andrea D. Laura G. Torin P. Tatum D, Danielle, Margaret M, Olivia D, Chloe Danserva, Ray Ann G slash S. <laughs> hyphen. Yay. I bet you get compliments on your hyphen. Oh, I'm sure you do. Really, really. <laughs> yeah. Thank you guys so much. We love you and we will catch you next week. Bye. Bye. We'd love to hear your thoughts on this case. Connect with us on Instagram or Facebook to continue the conversation. Thanks for listening and we will meet you back here next week. Bye. The theme song for the show is created and composed by Stephen Toby. You can find more of Stephen's work on SoundCloud. Our logo was created by Sloan Williams of Sophisticated Crayon. You can find more of her work on Etsy. Visit us at killerqueenspodcast.com for merch and other info about the show. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform, with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, 
according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. 